0: Hello, and welcome to the Geeks for Social Change podcast, where we talk about tools and processes for community liberation. I'm Kim from Geeks for Social Change, and I'm joined today by Zara Manahoto and Mallory Moore to talk about how the technology of state and empire affects who we are and can become. Hello. I'm Kim Foll, and this is the first Geeks for Social Change podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by two amazing guests. We've got Zara Manohuto from um, a range of groups in Manchester, probably point one, and um, she's on it, and with Mallory Moore from Trans Safety Network, again, among many other groups. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves in a second, but I just wanted to say that the point of this podcast is to start getting some conversations we've been having privately about tech and activism and the intersections between the two down on paper. We tried doing this as kind of a zine and we tried doing writing it up and coming up with other formats but like I think um, I'm sure sure they'll uh, both join me in realizing a lot of the best conversations we have at the moment just seem to be in group chats or voice notes or emails or things which just or discord conversations and things which never sort of get Written down anywhere. So, we're here to kind of explore this interplay and see if we can sort of through these conversations come to a better understanding about how these two things work together. So, without further ado, I will introduce uh, Zara. So, do you want to tell me kind of what you've been working on, how you're feeling this week, um, anything you're excited or sad about?
1: Um, yeah. So, hi, I'm Zara. I am involved in a lot of um, anti racism, abolitionists organising um, and have been for some quite some time. I'm, I'm Manchester-based, Manchester-born and bred, Manchester and proud. Uh, let's just get that straight out there. Um, but yeah, no, been heavily involved in kind of the Kill the Bill movement, um, the mobilisations with Black Lives Matter, and, and now uh, looking really into kind of building foundations in the community to counteract the harm. That we're facing from this state whether that be through like cop watching but also raising awareness with children and young people around um the harms that they're faced with and the families and and that kind of stuff i'm feeling okay i have had um a whirlwind of a couple of weeks um but yeah i'm feeling okay happy to be here uh, in good company
2: hi um i'm Mallory Moore
1: um i'm
2: one of the founding members of trans safety network um and i have a farewell previous to that of various grassroots activism since my teens have been doing various sorts of activism on and off My big things right now are uh trans safety uh research and trying to make it so that uh harm to trans people actually matters because it's is something which keeps disappearing just because no one's particularly interested in it. And um, which it's a funny thing because everyone talks about it, but it's, anyway, I won't go too deep into that one. And in terms of how I'm feeling, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I, the, there seems to be a bit of a swell of various sorts of grassroots and it's small, um, but, people are starting to get a bit more creative and that's something that's really inspiring me um away from the usual kind of institutional left so it's, it's a big deal for me
0: I think that's a really good segue to kind of what we want not just this episode to this whole podcast to be about which is kind of I think these two terms kind of activism and tech are both the more we've looked into them in kind of developing this idea, the more the, just the sort of the more vague and weird and undefined they are, and how I think almost everyone who defines who describes themselves as an activist hates the term actually, and ends up almost immediately kind of making us sort of like, well, I'm an activist, but not that kind of activist kind of gesture, right? And we all do it, and we all talk about it, and I think there's possibly like a feeling that there's maybe some bad things about it that really don't appeal to us. And I think the same with anarchists, like a lot of these terms feel almost like cringe, you know, like who would say they're an activist? Who would say they're an anarchist? How cringe is that? And I think the same with tech. So a lot of the perception we have of tech is very... It's kind of all good or all bad, you know it's either like the thing that's going to save us all or it's all terrible and surveilling us and, and, and so yeah, I think we're just going we're going to try and get into these a little bit. So I wondered first if either of you have got any thoughts on kind of like what we mean by an activist, if it's something you identify with, if you hate it, because I do, if there's anything else you're using at the moment.
1: I actually cringe when people are like, I meet Zara activist, and I'm like, okay, but what does that mean to you? Um, I think. I just think so many people are activists, and that's cool. Like, people can do what they want to do, and if you're doing good, then that's great. But I also think that it's a label that's, um, you know, has so many different definitions and is used in so many different ways, and it's also used as like a label to like exclude and invalidate your work and and what you stand for as well in in like it's like the term radical, like Sarah, she's radical and it's like, okay, next you're going to call me an extremist. Do you know what I mean? And all those kind of things. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't usually talk about myself and my position, but I would say like, oh yeah, I'm involved in like a lot of grassroots community campaigns and I'm involved with a lot of organizing activities and, and that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, there are definitely people that would tell me like, you're an activist.
2: Yeah, I guess if I jump in here um, on the on the trans front, there's like currently this thing called the TRA, which is like trans rights activists. It's been it's been chosen as a term because it sounds like MRA or men's rights activist. Um, and there's this idea like these evil TRAs are taking over the world, like we're secretly plotting in the shady corners of the world in our volcano there's Good. Um, and taking over everything. And the truth is, I am, but mm-hmm. um. But actually, it's 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 kind of disappointing sometimes because you get like every 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 single trans person's a TRA um, if they if they speak loud, if they speak publicly about anything. And I guess so I guess my my relationship with the sort of activist stigma is kind of the reverse where I see quite reactionary uh, trans people who aren't necessarily, doing anything for the community I know I, I don't want to name too many names because there's too many of them um and they're not they're like you know basically celebrities and or like z-list celebrities and you know the moment they say anything about trans issues they're a trans activist and like like the the every, literally every every trans person's like like I've, I've worked hard for my <laughs> stripes <laughs> and like literally every trans person's written off as a radical these days. And I feel like the room, the room just isn't there for me to like be pushing a radical agenda, which is really upsetting for me because I guess that's something I've, I've wanted to have. And there's just no space left. Cause it's, what what we're allowed to say and what sort of things we're allowed to imagine have been cut back and back and back in the media so far at this point i'm not even on the edge anymore
0: yeah i think we you know the other term that is thrown around with a lot is kind of abolitionism um in this case meaning sort of like getting rid of systems because let's face it in the uk like most of them are bad (laughs) if you point at anything it probably needs abolishing let's face it um but i think yeah it's really interesting because if you ask most people what they're image of being an activist is um it's usually something along the lines of kind of going to a protest or being kind of obnoxious in some way you know like it, it's the it's the people are terrified of or well not maybe terrified is the wrong word but you know you look at groups like insulate britain and people just see them as someone who's slowing them down getting to work or whatever right like that's like the only concept people have got and yeah like you say it's just bananas with trans activism where we're sort of asking for things that five years ago were not controversial but because that's so distant from where the Overton window is at the moment it seems radical so yeah I'm really interested for you to talk more Zara, about what you were saying about this term activist being used as a way to kind of exclude people or set them apart.
1: Well I think see for me the funny thing is is that I never realized that the work that I was doing would be considered activism because it was just what I did based on the fact that I come from a community that is persecuted based off the facts that we're working class, racialized, And so it was just like standing up for ourselves. It was what we were taught to do from young. Um, and then as I got older, I became involved in, you know, organising. And then, but because of like, Working in and around Manchester, I study social policy, um, you know, sitting at tables with people who were in charge of institutions and in positions of power and authority and in positions that were able to kind of frame strategies and frameworks that affected my communities. And I'm talking for years, this, like, because I've always been the gobby one in the room, in the workplace, like, I've never been able to keep my mouth shut. When I was an apprentice, they liked it, but then once I was a paid employee, it was like, okay, slow down. Um but and then it, it they would say things like, Oh, this isn't an activist space. Like we're, we're doing things differently here. And um, you know, y- you don't have to shout about things and you, you don't need to get so angry. Well, actually, people are being tasered to death or, you know, people are being harassed on a daily in the the streets by the police or, um, you know, we've got social services coming in, removing children that don't need removing. What needed happening was the parents needed support. And I am angry and my anger is valid. And when I'm nice and I'm calm and I'm like, okay, you aren't listening to me. So I need to bring my assertive self into that space for you to take me seriously. Um, And to say, you know, you have to work within the system. Well, the system's causing me harm. And I'm here sat at this table conversing with you, telling you what you can do in your positions of power to make it better for us, and then you're saying, oh, but we can't do that because that's too much change or that's not how we do things or things need to take time and, you know, we need to do some research into this. We don't need to do any research because the lived experience is sat in front of you. Um, and so that, and that's how they'd use it. They'd use the term activism, activists um, to kind of say, oh, you know, calm down a bit. Not, not here, not around this table. It invalidated... Because I wasn't, you know, what I was presenting was the lived experience of myself, community members, reflections, examples, real life examples with badge numbers and recordings. But because that information wasn't presented to them in a report written by a doctor from a local university research centre, it wasn't valid for them. Which is really, really sad because those institutions make money off my lived experience, and then present it to strategy leads and policy leads and make re- recommendations. Um all while anonymizing us, but taking credit for that work. And thousands and pounds, even millions of pounds is thrown at that, but the recommendations aren't mm-hmm. followed. And it's just a cycle of experience, research, experience, research, and nothing actually changes fundamentally for us in our lives.
2: Yeah, there's that um there's that real relationship of inequality around um. Who's who's allowed to produce knowledge? That happens a lot. happens 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 for us a lot as well.
0: Yeah. So I think like there's a couple of themes that come out there for me. I think one of them is like, which I wasn't expecting. when We started this. There's almost it almost feels like there's an element of something akin to whistleblowing to a lot of the work we're doing, where it's being the one to to be willing to stick your head above and say actually this isn't good enough. And it's it's interesting to pull it out. But I feel like the other part that maybe we have talked about last, and I'd like to hear what both of you do is kind of like what are the activities that you do that I don't want to say make you an activist because we're trying to get away from that term but like what are the activities you do that feel of the kind of most benefit to your immediate communities so like to give examples I think for me a lot of the time it's kind of like working on some software stuff with geeks of social change that We'll talk about in future episodes, you know, like that's often the most useful thing I can do for other people is to just like help them out with some like basic tech support or do some stats or something. But I think on a more day-to-day level, it feels more about being there to support my sort of friends and comrades and colleagues like emotionally and like making space to have these kind of conversations and to like invite people around for dinner and to like encourage people to talk about like the things that are bothering them and the kind of like, you know, this dissonance between (laughs) the experience of living in the country and like what you're supposed to think it is, you know, if I feel like there's such a a mishmash there and especially post COVID when we're supposed to be in this sort of leveling up and everything's better now and it's gone back to normal and most of us are still processing what's happened, you know, I I can't put my finger on it, but it just feels like sometimes being, what I think of as activism is just like paying attention to this huge disconnect that feels everywhere right now.
2: So I guess there is, there is that kind of care and, and I, I, I do that too with kind of um, other, uh, with other activists who are like peers, um, other people doing community work and community trying to have a relationship of uh, care with other people who are doing that work in community. Um you know, telling people they've done good, um, listening to them talking about stuff that's stressing them out, trying to provide experience where I've got it, or direct people onto people that might be able to help them if I don't have it. I think that's a that's like a that's a foundational thing. Um, just making sure that it's sustainable. Like I got a peer organizer that I do I do a weekly debrief with privately and. We just talk about shit that's happened, um, and just like deal with it and try and work out—not not even try and work out solutions to it—but just like talk out shit that's happened in the last week, because uh, there's al- always something.
1: I'd say that I do a range of things. So you might see me on a Saturday with a megaphone stood on a Saint Peter's Square shouting my mouth off, and <laughs> leading um, chants, marching. But and then you know the back office organizing that comes with that organizing a demo um but then and that's like your typical in it um but then i also do information sharing raising awareness within the community like the biggest thing that i think i do is listening and offering space again like what you've just talked about because i am then able to take what i listen and what I hear and do something with that. It's uh, in many ways is actually kind of a real driving force behind my work. And I, I am able to identify needs within the community. So recently there's been like a rollout of like know your rights training that's been made available to children and young people, um, parents, um, allied professionals <laughs> within the youth work sector. Um, and then but also things like being involved with intervention um, of stopping searches and what that looks like and um, supporting people to, you know, find what the information that they need to be able to challenge and take on services and institutions that are causing them harm, but then also matching ma- mapping them with um, an organisation that can, provide immediate safety or care or support in in that moment so yeah a range of things and I'm lucky actually to be surrounded by people like yous who like I I like to think of myself as like a younger <laughs> I'm like 30 now <laughs> but that I have like all these people who are just around me who I'm able to be like did I just talk this through for a minute and you know this is happening and I say all the time like I walk with confidence because I have so many people around me who offer this knowledge and information to me. Um, And like me and Kim have been known to be voice noting until one o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, no. And I like to think that I bring that information and share it with others.
0: It's interesting because when you talk about it this way, it's almost like, you know, it almost feels like the work that goes on on the network level is like a big mycelial network and the protests are like the mushrooms that spring up right but it's kind of um it's kind of wild because i guess maybe because because protest is seen as like the entry point to activism maybe we get to blame the swp for this now i think about it another thing to put on their sh- their shit list like it's like all this other stuff i feel is almost like more important on it is much more important on a day-to-day basis i think protest is like often a flashpoint in a way of letting off steam and it and it should be a way of like experiencing joy and seeing your friends and hanging out but, and it it's just I'm, I'm not sure how people can get involved in this if they don't go through via this protest route which then sort of sets the scene for everything that comes after and you end up with just the angry ones like us hanging around i don't know <laughs> And it, I suppose everyone's angry. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's other there's other ways people find into activism, um, like around uh, community care activism. There's a lot of people who end up uh, coming into contact with that through and and like peer advocacy that happens. A lot of people come into contact with that through a crisis happens in their life, um, and they need they need support of some kind. And then they come out the other end, and if they're okay and they've got the resources, they get trained up themselves. Like there's, there are other models for things, um, and the, the benefit of that kind of model is that those people aren't coming in because they were looking to be a do-gooder. They're kind of coming in because they've got their own like, lived experiences of the situations, and they're becoming an activist as a as a result of sharing their. What, what helped them survive crises in order mm. to like strengthen other people going through that again after them.
0: I think that's good. So maybe we should go on and talk about like technology a little bit. And I think I'll frame this a bit because I think the word technology, especially in the last 10 years, has come to mean something very rarefied that it hasn't always. So the, the literal etymology of technology, I mean, there's a few sites that give you different ones. It's from the Greek and it means systemic treatment of an art craft or technique so really there's two parts to this there's kind of like the thing itself that's being made and the process that it is it's made through so you know it gives a social change we started talking about tools and processes for community liberation and this is why because we think it breaks it down a bit it's like a lot of the things we're talking about here you know like protest information sharing community care these are all processes and in doing them we use tools and these things get various amounts of attention you know um uh, just to to give this a bit more flesh too like um ursula franklin is a amazing canadian uh physicist who wrote a really seminal work called the real world of technology that we'd advise everyone to read there's a series of lectures too that we'll we'll link under the podcast afterwards but she she splits technologies into two kinds um so and basically this she calls them holistic or prescriptive technologies and basically this is the difference between a work related tool and a control related tool. So a work related technology such as a typewriter are designed to make tasks easier. Um, this has also been seen as there's things like making a pot where um, you know usually when you have a pottery class everyone's involved in, a potter is involved in every stage from collecting the raw material to making the final thing. And while the pots might all look the same um, they all they're, they're all slightly different and will have been adapted and gone through the same process and effectively the potter is in control of this work or if you're using a single a network computer the computer operator is in control of this work and then a prescriptive technology is more like a technology of the boss so if we think about say making something like a steel beam this is like then a, a universal unit that can be sort of picked up and reproduced. Or if we think about a computer that becomes networked, that's then something that a boss can sort of see how much is being produced. And so it, it turns it around and it means that it enables this control by people on the workers that are doing it. And I think it's interesting that these two even though they might have the same tool, the process here is very different. So this is how we've been thinking about technology. And I think we've not been necessarily communicating it very well, but I just wanted to put this into like frame tech. I don't know if that's like way too academic or like what people think about that and how you think about kind of what technology is and how you use it in your day-to-day life. I don't know who wants to go first.
1: (laughs) So tech to me is that thing that I'm not very good at and I don't really get Um, In a nutshell, I have a phone, I have a laptop and just about use like Zoom and Word and that kind of stuff. Um, But in terms of like with the work, like organising, it's only since meeting you, understanding that the two need marrying together. And that, that work is actually taking place. I just wasn't aware of it because the work that I've always been involved in has been very boots on the ground, face to face meetings, meeting with people in the community. It's always been like conversational. And if we had brought, um, if there was any kind of techie bit to it, it was basically to like email someone and like emailing lists and, um, you know, recording misconduct by the police on a phone for instance but then as the years have gone by um, and the organising has gone kind of national it's been like okay we need to really get more structure around what we're doing but then also understanding how we can be infiltrated free tech how we can be monitored free tech how we're so easy to track and trace um and that the government and um you know all of these statutory bodies and services have like whole teams of like media and communication and all that kind of stuff that we're having to deal with and it's funny because they do a lot of their work as well like through tech like consultations but we're not accessing any of that information because it is online and it is free surveys and all that kind of stuff. So I'm still finding my footing. But then I'm also understanding that I don't need to understand everything. I just need to communicate with the people that do, so that then they can do their magic, and we can work together.
2: I th- like I, th- I think it's I think it's interesting that the first thing you said is text something you're not very good at, and. I I probably should have explained in my introduction, I'm, I'm a technologist, um, for a living, but like, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think this is actually a big feature of what's happening with tech in terms of automation and computerization of technology. Whereas like the examples Kim gives of tech being like, you know, potter's wheels and things like that. Um, Which is, which is not how a lot of people think of tech these days. For me, tech is, um, is like, you know, human includes human processes and, you know, how we, how we talk to each other. If we have, if we have a process for like vetting new members of an activist group to see if they're safe or not, things like that are still technology to me. But like what's, what's going on in part is that you've, like you say, you've got these, these, these technologies of surveillance and control that are invading our lives through being useful like phones are useful um, but they're not transparent to you Uh, they betray you to the police they um, send your information to like advertisers which is sold um you know you don't you don't have control over that very easily most people don't have control over that um so yeah like I i think this this aspect of the lack of transparency in tech is is such a huge problem in terms of how hard it is for for people to have any control over their lives when all of that belongs to the people with ownership of the tech ownership of the ways ownership of the means, the tools and the processes all belong to some someone else and they work for someone else even if you've paid money for it which is like that's kind of that's kind of the thing.
1: It's funny that you like when you say it, like like I think of tech as like this big massive black hole,
2: mm.
1: like when you you know like the phone stuff and I'm like yeah that's happening up there somewhere and I don't really get it and it's it's but I need my phone
2: yeah because that belongs to someone else that's that's kind of what I mean that that all of that process like right fr- right from the like silicon chips in your phone and how those are organised all the way up to the equipment and the satellites that's like taking your phone call to some other place. Um, Like the whole thing belongs to someone else. And because they have control of it, you don't get to see how that works. Even, even if you were able to like understand it, which is like, yeah.
1: And I think that actually, like to me, the unknown is quite scary. Yeah. Mm. So instead of pursuing the scariness, I just kind of block it out. Like even at uni, when at uni, I was the person who went and sat in the library pulling the physical books off the bookshelves and reading them and writing notes by hand rather than accessing all these PDFs because once I've downloaded something, I can never then find it again. And you know, all these different things. And I think so, and then, but what you said about processes also being like human processes. Now those I can do, I'm very meticulous with ways of working and I like my lists and I like this and I like that. And, um, so to think of it like that is is like nice for me actually to c- take out of this conversation.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, it's like something that really triggered a lot of this thought process for us too. Was just this statement people make when they say like I'm not a tech person or I don't really get computers. And I'd kind of challenge to find a single person at least in the UK who's doesn't spend a decent part of their everyday life like on their computer or their phone doing something and it's like it's so embedded in everyday life and i don't think it was always like this i think i can't remember you know like facebook youtube twitter they're all less than 15 years old i'm pretty sure i'll have to check the dates and it's wild how fast this has kind of changed what organizing looked like so i think you know when i started out as a baby activist what it meant to be an activist was to organize events and festivals and put stuff on that your friends could come to and make social places and set up squats and do fun stuff and I feel like when I was doing tech stuff back then, that was more like helping people lay out, like set of magazines in like Quack Express or whatever, or it was setting up networks and community centers, or it was like m- making all, you know, f- piecing together thin client computers from bits out of a skip. And at some point in the last sort of 10 years or so, that's just not the case anymore. And increasingly like it's gone from tech people being kind of like individuals who would like, you know, make a quick website for a community center or put together a network and have like a general range of skills to being this sort of very rarefied thing where like if you learn, if you go and learn about how to be a programmer nowadays, you'll learn a very specialist thing that just basically, you know, massive companies want and you'll sit on a team of like 200 and do some really specialized parts. You know, I've spoken to people who do this, like they'll program sort of like 3d CAD software in the cloud in JavaScript, but like they've never deployed a website, you know, and I can't, get my head around that and it feels like i think exactly like you said Sarah. it's like a black hole it's like it's been designed to feel like you're powerless and i think weirdly what we've got here now with this sort of you know facebook apple amazon microsoft google or fang as people call it it's kind of a real oppressor, oppressed situation. And what always happens when you've got an oppressed group is they just feel stupid and like it's their fault, right? <laughs> and actually like, it's the other way around. It's been deliberately engineered to be like this in this sort of like global totalitarian fascist worldview. I mean, and I, is it fair to call the structure of Facebook literally fascist? I think it is. And yet like everyone feels like they're suddenly each individually a personal failure for like not being able to fit in with it, right?
2: <laughs> like if you think about a shovel, right? Let let let's. Breakdown technology really, really simply. If you think about a shovel, that is a piece of technology that's designed for one person with one pair of hands. Okay. And it's got like a, a thing at the end that you hold. It's got a thing, it's got a shaft that you hold as well. You dig things with it, it's got a place where you can put your foot. Um, that's a one-person thing. Uh, and it's designed with like the intention, like this is this isn't something that we think about when we look at a shovel, but it's designed with the intention that one person is going to be using that, not two people or like any other configuration Um, it's not going to be very useful for someone with like only one hand Um, various other things going to be problematic for it because it's been designed with one purpose and if you if you look at things like facebook or like the mobile phone network that stuff's opaque not because um it's, it's 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 not it's not visible to you as an end user because the intention is that you're an end user. Shut up. <laughs> um, like that. The, it's not, it's not that the end users are stupid. Um, and I've, I've, I've worked on telecoms equipment. They have lots of information. They have like uh, a, a standard telecoms um, uh, hub, uh, taking like fiber into like a fiber cabinet or something like that will have like, you know, it has a special access door for for law enforcement <laughs> um, uh, that's, like, standard built into all of them. So uh, for some people, it's very, very easy to access that kind of technology. For everyone else, it isn't. Mm. Um, and they're designed that way. It's, it's like, it's not... People people often feel stupid because, like, like Kim said, people feel stupid because they're disempowered, because the technology is disempowering. It wasn't designed with a handle for them to hold on to. And I think that's the really, you know, the, the handles are all pointing towards the people who own the equipment or the people who have legal powers to seize control of the equipment.
1: And it's funny because, like, so I'm fair, so I've watched things come in. And it's funny because I say all the time, I'm, I'm so glad that I actually had a childhood, and I call it a childhood because I used to go out and play Kirby and knock a door and do you know what I mean, whereas the young people that I work with, my nephews, my nieces, all of them they've just been on screens from day dot and but for them, this is their norm, so they've been born an end user with tech how it is now and don't know any different, although like some of them that the young people that I work with are intercoded and are doing that in libraries now from the get go but like what you're talking about this whole like infiltration mechanism that's built into this tech that nobody's aware of. I think even when people are aware of it, a lot of people are just like, just like when the state refuses to feed children and it's, oh, that's the way it is. There's nothing you can do to change it. Whereas, like, especially now, for instance, in Manchester, I have a real motivation to be educating children about how the data on their phone can be used against them. Like media and how that even just media that's on your phone can be used against you. And I think we have to be thinking that way now, don't we? And it's funny because that is a thought path that you will have had for years, I'm guessing, like just kind of been in that zone. Whereas I'm just still catching up because we, a lot of the work that I'm involved in still very much is about putting chairs out in a community centre and putting them away and making brews and, With you know having physical space for conversation and a lot of our activism is face to face um but what we're now realizing is the experience is also tied to the tech in your lives when you're not in those spaces
0: this might be a good segue into talking about um a huge case that's just happened last week with a joint enterprise trial um it's 30th of may i'm not sure when we'll be broadcasting this but uh i wondered if either of you do do you feel able to do an introduction to this case sarah because i think it's maybe a you know a lot of this can sound really virtual but i think where we're coming with this is like this isn't this is very real and very literal and happening right now
1: yeah so the case that's happened actually looks like a joint enterprise case but the doctrine of joint enterprise wasn't used it's a joint enterprise is a doctrine that's used to um, convict a group of people for the same offence based off the fact that there can be evidence that people have knowledge of this singular offence taking place. Um, and we've seen it happen before in, in Manchester multiple times, use um, of joint enterprise, where um, a violent crime has been committed um, by one, two, three people Um, and groups of up to 12 or 15 people have been prosecuted, um, found guilty and sentenced um, for that, um, whether it be murder or, you know, like a serious harm, because they have been found to be closely associated or have knowledge um, of that harm taking place. So what's happened in Manchester just now um, is that 10 boys have... um, tragically lost a friend in 2020 and um, were conversing in a group chat following this in moments of grief to organise a memorial. Um, Different things happened in aftermath where harm took place um, in terms of like, uh, which involved um, a weapon um, and a car, which... um, Two or three of the boys, three of the boys were involved in and had knowledge of at two different times. Um, But 10 boys in this group chat um, were arrested by the police because of being part of this group chat and were charged with conspiracy to murder um, and conspiracies to commit grievous bodily harm. Um, And all 10 have been found guilty of that. And basically, the evidence that has been used in this trial to get that guilty verdict as presented by the GMP to CPS has been a telegram group chat in which links the boys together. And then, following their arrests, their telephones, their telephones, mobile phones have been taken in and used as evidence with like tens of thousands of pieces of media downloaded and gone through. By people who aren't experts in understanding the media and data that was on the phone. Um, These are all 10 black boys, I should add at this, you know, should have said at the beginning. Um, And the prosecution have managed to create a narrative around the boys of them being an organized, criminally active gang um, based off the fact that they are into music, drill music specifically, um, all come from very, what would be considered disadvantaged postcodes. Um, you know, they have black skin. They, um, One of them um, had a, a drugs offence, which actually was completely because of a lack of safeguarding, um, safeguarding failure in his life. So yeah, basically this narrative has been created based off the media that was on their phone, um, where people were posing in pictures and in videos, because some of them were rappers and in music groups, which then was able to bring forward this gang label um, because they wore the same colour, where actually some of the evidence that they provided in the trial was absolutely misrepresented because it was footage from London and not even with the boys in in this group. Um, So the jury, which, you know, we never get a jury of our peers, let's be serious, found them guilty. Four of them have been found guilty with conspiracy to commit murder And six of them have been found guilty with conspiracy to commit GBH And um, the sentencing hearing is taking place on the 30th of June They're looking at some serious, serious sentencing um, Double-figure sentencing for a moment, moments of grief um, with In no some support. cases, as few
0: as three text messages, I believe, yes. right? Yeah Yeah So I think, yeah, um, I'm intrigued to bring in um, Mallory's thoughts here, but I think, you know, one way of looking at this is kind of a massive systemic failure of a load of technological systems, right? So you've got policing, you've got the courts, you've got the individual functions within the ways that these work, you've got all this content, which is presumably being pulled from, you know, I presume the draw videos are kind of on YouTube. So it's almost like none of these services give a fuck right <laughs> they they don't care it's like an unreal kind of massive catastrophic failure of this whole system to represent these people
2: yeah i mean in terms of the technological aspect of that um i don't i don't know where to start i see a lot of the criminal justice system as a as a technology for further aggravating class divides <laughs> so um i yeah i you, I mean, you can you can tell it's a, you can tell the criminal justice system is a technology for, for for perpetuating class violence because it does that to ten boys, and you know politicians can do an un, unknown number of criminal things and get nothing. But I'm, I'm trying to be a bit less glib, but I don't, I don't know what to say because it's a genuinely shocking. The, the whole case is really shocking, and I, I don't know what else to say about it.
1: The key thing for me in this case, or not one of the key things, is that the media and data on the phone outweighed their actual humanity and their character. And um, I'm not trying to say that people should be excellent and should be, you know, amazing, but these some of these boys had university places, college places, were involved in football, you know, um still lived at home with parents were just friends of the same estate of the same areas um you know had good grades were attending school we're doing all these things that you know we're told that we we have to do is when we're children to comply and and you know become a success in life. None of that mattered because the tech told us who they really were according to the to, to the cps and this was the argument it was their interest in music means that they advocate for violence their skin color means that they are part of a gang you know the fact that they lost a friend and they wanted to talk about this on this telegram group chat specifically it being telegram means that they had something to hide and there was an ulterior motive when actually um
2: all sorts of people set up groups on telegram
1: this well it's after the guilty verdict came back, I tweeted, I feel like running up, I'm very, I've got mixed feelings, I feel like running up in that courthouse and causing a ruckus. Once I sent it, I realised that message is probably very similar to what the boys had said. And, you know, and, and I, I replied, tweeted to it, like, it's this kind of message that would have me done for conspiracy to commit criminal damage. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's kind of it's it's kind of a, a meme in like online geeky activist circles, um, talking about fed posting and avoiding fed posting because if you fed post you, you know it could come back and bite you later. If if they pick you up for one thing, then like anything anything dumb you've said online becomes evidence.
0: I was gonna say like from what you're saying, Zara, it's weird. Like it's almost like the the reality that it's almost like who these boys presenting themselves as online has been more real to the judge and the jury than who they actually are in real life right it's like these few interactions with social media like have the some of them sounds like it's been more under discussion than who they actually are
1: and some of this media hadn't been shared it was just on their phone do you know what i mean and it, some of it it wasn't them. their interest in other people's music um you know made them an advocate for violence and um but yeah it basically is saying what you hold in your phone what data sits on your laptop that is who you truly are and I suppose you know there's arguments to be made that people would make pro that but when it comes to children who are navigating a very hostile environment who are. um grieving and this is one of the things that i said on on saturday they were grieving not guilty Mm. and where was thought crime isn't it like Mm. just like simply enough it's that
2: people use people use social media to get their thoughts out even if it's bollocks and like frequently most of us just chatting bollocks and like this is essentially just thought crime what's going on
1: But who would have known, like, and this is the big thing for me, like, working with children and young people, because I don't believe that children and young people should be policed around their expression of self. I really don't. I think children should be free to explore themselves, to be um, free to experience what they're interested in, to change in interests and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um. But there's something, there's a piece of work there that I haven't quite thought out yet, but I am in the process of thinking through around how we... Because technically this would be considered political education, what I'm talking about right now, is we need to be letting young people know how this can happen to anybody. The ramifications of being a child, basically. Like, and, and, and I don't want to stop them from being a child, but I want to prevent this from ever
0: happening again. I guess we've talked a lot about tech as being something scary and and that's that's oppressing people. And I think for the most part it is. And I think this is what I see missing from most mainstream tech discourse. is just like there's always this... It's sort of portrayed as this kind of value-neutral thing where it's like, oh, we've made a cool new little widget. Isn't that nice? And then you look at the sort of sum total of it all and it's like, no, it's definitely not nice. But I was going to kind of move on a bit to to just... I think there's probably possibly a lot of parallels here to the, to the work that I know you're doing with transphobia, Mallory. Um, And just these similar patterns where you kind of got the media and, you know, like a bunch of really hostile Twitter accounts and they really use these tools to kind of portray trans people in a certain light. And I, I don't know where I'm really going with this question but I'm just kind of interested what you see as kind of are there any ways of resisting this or is it just sort of like you know fighting a losing battle do you think and and what ways would 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 we resist this
2: So like on the on the, on the trans question with respect to institutional transphobia and and technology like the history of trans the, the big one is like trans healthcare and the history of trans healthcare is one of trying to stop people being trans fundamentally like transition related healthcare that we have now started off with them trying to stop people being trans and then realizing that they couldn't. And then like helping people transition, um, helping helping the few people who like got through that hazing process to transition, but like deciding that trying to prevent people transitioning was like a good idea. So we're in like this current there's there's that angle on things of of our whole healthcare system is trying to mitigate against our existence and then there's all this other there's a other side of stuff which is like the the processes in society in general regulating gender regulating legal gender um and how how spaces are spaces and processes are gendering so there's this great book called captive genders um and it includes stuff like uh the ways that like it's got it's got stuff by uh cece mcdonald who was a black trans woman who was incarcerated in america for uh killing a white supremacist who was trying to murder her um and she and other people talk about uh surveillance and and gendering and all sorts of other ways that, you know, there's this kind of invalidation that happens through, you know, what's your real legal gender? Because we all have the, like legal registered gender in most most countries, most parts of the world. Um, like because it's written down somewhere and because it's attached to whether you have any rights or not, this institutional weight that's added to it and it affects the human rights. It affects how you get treated if you go to prison. It affects how you get treated if you're discriminated against in law, it affects all sorts of rights elsewhere. So, and 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 there's this big conflict between like fairly um, white and liberal trans rights organisations who seemed to be mostly interested in like tampering around, like, let's make these genders valid and legal um, versus a lot of other people who've never had proper documentation um, who will struggle with any system where you have to like turn up and provide evidence. Like it it works genuinely quite a lot. Like the border system, (laughs) Uh, you have to like have documented evidence that you've been like in this particular condition and that you've been validated by these people. And like, you've been doing it for two years and you've proven you're a good citizen because you like signed up and you took your hormone pills and you were like, you know, so you've got a right to change gender and then the government will change your gender for you. And it's just absolute, Like the the entire thing seems to be designed around hampering trans people just getting on with their lives, Mm -hmm. um, all for all for the purpose of maintaining this binary separation between men and women in law. That like you know we we have other we have other social classes where we can protect against discrimination without having like an actual legal status that makes you that thing. Um, We protect against like. We protect against homophobic discrimination or against racist dis- discrimination without you being legally homosexual <laughs> or legally black. Like we don't, we don't have that. But um, in terms of gender regulation, we we still very much have that. Uh, so that's what I would say. It's probably the big, the big, um, the big divide in trans activism is around whether we should like tamper with that system and make it better for some middle-class documented trans people who have like two or three years worth of documentation and like signed letters from two different psychiatrists and can prove like they've been employed the entire time. So they can get a letter from their employers to like show that they've been properly living as a woman or a man or like whatever, Uh, versus people who think that who can like recognize that that's actually really bad um, as a, as a system. And we should probably just abolish it. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. Mean one day, I'm going to have to pass the exam to show that I'm just some weird, like, <laughs> gen- gender disaster goblin. Is that going to be like official one government of the, form? Like, one of the
2: most, one of the most, one of, my, one of the most passable middle class trans women that I know, who has been like transitioned for several years, like got every single surgery, got like a bunch of other stuff. Um, got rejected from her first application to change her gender so it's like you like, like maybe they don't feel like it that day right <laughs> um yeah. which again it's a it's a lot like the home office as far as i'm concerned it's a bit like i don't know anyway so
0: something and, that's uh, really struck me here is like i think we've talked a lot recently about between the three of us and all these voice messages we're talking about i think just about the kind of intersectionality to a lot of these issues feels like it's kind of gone down the river a bit because there's just so many day-to-day fights on all of these issues that kind of take over, especially if you're a bit terminally online, like I think it's fair to say all of us are. And it really just strikes me like, you know, these are two vastly different use cases. You know, the case of these kind of 10 black boys from our side, and the case of kind of like, you know, often sort of middle-class trans women. And But there's there's these like real connecting lines and it and i think this tension between your representation in the technologies that exist to control our lives and how you actually are as a human being this seems to be a really big tension and maybe almost the cause of to bring it back right to the beginning where a form of activism starts so maybe what i'm getting is there's a sense that kind of like if if you know your your representational fit within this within this bigger system gets too disconnected from how you actually are this is almost what forces you to become an activist you don't really have any choice it's like the system has like sort of popped you off the side you know like you don't fit anymore and then really the only option you have is to kind of i guess like depending on your perspective either fight to be re-included in it or fight to change the system because it sucks <laughs> you know i've been talking recently about how it's sort of like, you know, we get invited to these listening events and consultations which basically get ignored and it's kind of like that they're, they're, they're passing us felt tips and we've kind of got the firelighters, we're ready to like burn the thing down and it's like we're just, we're just on two completely different wavelengths, you know?
1: It's funny though because like when it comes back to that tools and processes thing and um, like the example that Mallory gives, it working like the home office, when they find something that works, they're going to roll it out wide. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, this. <laughs> it makes me think as well. Like, because of all this data that they gather, that they gather on, like trans people, what we're going to end up with, like, is like we have the gangs matrix. There's going to be a trans matrix. There's a transsexuals register. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. I'm not on it because I refuse to cite I've refused to get myself licensed as a transsexual. Fuck it.
1: It's, and and. and <laughs> What Kim said about, you know, being forced into activism, like, I'm literally a human, I exist, respect my existence or expect resistance comes to mind, And but also, like, working within systems of harm. So, like, in my professional work environments, I have struggled to work in certain settings because it means being complicit with the violence that funding means that you have to commit. And therefore, I've had to move away from those places of employment. Same with policy. Like, and, and that's why when I have conversations with people in the community and we're talking about things and I'm like, oh, so basically you're already part of the movement. And like, what? And I'm like, well, if you've stood up for this and you've said no to this and you don't want that because you need this, you're already with us. You just need to draw the lines. And I like to think, I was having this conversation with you the other day, Kim, like I am quite good at finding links and we have all these individual pieces of legislations and individual policies and strategies. And it's funny because we talked about this as well, about like Greater Manchester strategy. There's all these individual things, but actually they all work quite well together, but nobody's connecting the dots until you're that in it. That you can only see the dots. And it's sad for me sometimes, because sometimes I wish I couldn't see the dots so I didn't have to be angry all the time, so I could just chill out and like enjoy a night with my friends in town. But then something happens and I'm like, oh, see, look, there you come policing us and da 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 da. -da. And it is that intersectionality of, of oppression. That, and we have to adopt that intersectionality within our organising. And I said it on Saturday, like, my child is your child, your child is my child, like, my fight is your fight, your fight is my fight, and it's only by sharing this information and knowledge that we work towards solutions and not even changing the systems, just getting rid of them and creating the ones where we're actually on equal footing from the beginning, because people talk about equality, diversity and inclusion, I'm over the equality part, give me some equity, or I'll move out my way. Mm. So yeah, there's my little rant. I didn't think I was going to have a rant. But
0: yeah, I had a rant. Good. Or i am increasingly just like, just pay for me to go on holiday.
1: Yes. Give me some sunshine and rest.
0: Beach. Yeah. yeah, man. I think that's a really beautiful point to leave it on, unless um, there's any final thoughts from Mallory.
2: No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like,
0: yeah. Cool. I I think it's about
2: ownership. I think it's about ownership of the process. And... Like that whole Audre Lorde thing of like masters tools, um, the a lot of these systems aren't working for us because we don't own them. If we owned them, they would work. They, they would be ours, but they're not.
0: Yeah, it's processes are things you can own. That's really good. Maybe hey, maybe that's the topic for the next one. <laughs>